0: The outrage began with the calls for the removal of the Confederate flag and then exploded into assaults on George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln. My purpose in this special edition of Hidden Headlines is not to necessarily defend the merits of any of these individuals. Rather, I argue that the protests calling for the removal of affiliations with these historical characters or movements very closely resembles mob rule. These protests are actually founded on something that many refer to as historical presentism, whereby one applies contemporary moral judgments and worldviews to those of the past. This is why Karl Marx defiantly proclaimed, History means nothing. Friends, it's incredibly dangerous to look at the past through a present lens. Now, in this special edition of Hidden Headlines, you'll discover how America's founders warned of such mob behavior, and you'll learn some things about a few of the signers of the Declaration of Independence who gave their honor and their riches and their lives for the sake of our freedoms today. This is episode 65, the Independence Day edition of Hidden Headlines, and I'm your host. Brian Sussman. Welcome, everyone, to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm Brian Sussman. More about me at briansussman.com. I really appreciate you listening to these podcasts. James Madison's fear of mob rule and majoritarianism, for lack of a better word, is really a well-explored topic Suffice it to say that in Federalist Number 10, he wrote to the citizens of New York, and these Federalist papers were distributed across America so that those who lived here could see why we needed a Constitution and why we needed that Constitution to keep these states united. So this was in Federalist Number 10. He wrote to the citizens of New York that, Quote, measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. Now, this overbearing force today, and I can't really say it's a majority, but man, are they making their presence well known? This overbearing force today comes in the shape of tyrannical mobs who demand any affiliation with people they don't like to be permanently removed. This movement derives its strength from a purely negative energy. I would say an evil, perhaps you would even say demonic energy. And this negative energy is bringing about hypersensitive accusations of prejudice and racism. Again, as I've mentioned in recent episodes, just go to the About page of Black Lives Matter, and you'll see this isn't about race. It's about dismantling the concept of the traditional family and the total annihilation of the United States as we know it. And then while you're at their website, just for grins, click on the blue donate button. The money flow goes to an organization called Direct Blue, which is a nonprofit that funnels cash to the Democratic Party. What's really frightening is these mobs, they have neither a factual or nuanced historical understanding. For example, the protesters calling for the banning of the Confederate flag, do they really even know what that flag's all about? Do they know that this was the flag that represented the Army of North Virginia, the Army of North Virginia. The flag that represented the Confederate States of the United States of America was completely different, but they don't know that. Similarly, to those who are so offended by Thomas Jefferson, and they declare him to be a racist and a rapist, do they know that Jefferson was a lifelong opponent of slavery? and that the Hemings Affair is at best disputed by historians, not only did Jefferson refer to the institution of slavery as moral depravity, his words, moral depravity, and a hideous blot, again, his words, but he also dedicated his early legislative career to gradual abolition. In his original draft of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson denounced King George III for having, quote, prostituted his negative, that means his veto over colonial laws, for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. The execrable commerce being slavery. That's Jefferson. Jefferson. Jefferson declared slavery to be moral depravity, a hideous blot. And he called out King George for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain the commerce of slavery. In 1778, Thomas Jefferson drafted a law that would prohibit the importation of slaves into Virginia. Do these protesters know that? In 1784, he wrote would be what would be the precursor to the Northwest Ordinance that outlawed the expansion of slavery into the Northwest Territories. Should we blame Jefferson for not being single-handedly able to eliminate a quandary that required a devastating civil war to rectify? The Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. provides further proof of Jefferson's anti slavery sentiments. One panel on that memorial reads, quote, commerce between master and slave is despotism. Nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people are to be free. That's on the Jefferson Memorial. Does this give the impression of someone seeking to promote an ideology of white supremacy? These arguments aren't even being addressed by the media. Listen, I know these characters in the media. I know them well. I attended the prestigious University of Missouri School of Journalism. I ran a TV newsroom right out of college. I've been a professional media guy since I was 20. The majority of these people in the media today, the majority, they don't care about the truth. They care about an agenda. All of these protests of historical occurrences, they're they're symptomatic of something deeper, something more grievous. It's called historical presentism. Historical presentism. This is defined as the application of contemporary moral judgments or worldviews to the past. So, in other words, you're looking at the past through a present Lens, historical presentism. That's dangerous. Any trained historian knows that this is among the easiest traps anyone can fall into. Again, it's why Karl Marx said history means nothing. Indeed, these are dangerous times for the study of the past. And historians, and those of us who just love history, we cannot afford to sit idly by as these uninformed and misinformed tyrannical mobs seek to stamp out the history that they just don't like. It's a threat to the preservation of the past. It's a threat to, are you ready for this, free speech. It's a threat to the United States of America. As some of you are likely aware, in 2010, I wrote a book. It became an overnight bestseller. I was so excited and blessed, et cetera. It was entitled Climategate, A Veteran Meteorologist Exposes the Global Warming Scam. Because as some of you may know, perhaps most of you don't know, uh, besides having attended the University of Missouri uh, for communication, journalism, et cetera, I also ended up getting a degree in meteorology and for many years was a television meteorologist. So I wrote Climategate in 2010, and then in 2012, I published *Eco Tyranny: How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. I wrote these books because I was concerned about the state of the United States of America and how the left was using the environment to dismantle this country. In Eco-Tyranny, there's an afterword and a section entitled Patriotic Role Models. And I just want to read from this book for you right now. Again, I'm on page 235 of Eco-Tyranny. The stories of the patriots who founded America are incredibly inspirational, particularly the accounts of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, All those who inscribed their names on this document knew that by doing so, they and their families would become targets of the British crown. As B.J. Lossing wrote in his 1848 book, The Signers of the Declaration of Independence, the signing of that instrument was a solemn act and required great firmness and patriotism in those who committed it. It was treason against the home government, yet perfect allegiance to the law of right. It subjected those who signed it to the danger of death, yet it entitled them to the profound reverence of a disenthralled people. Now again, that's from 1848, so let me continue here. And again, I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Hidden Headlines because this is history that's been lost I often imagine, as I go back to the writings in this book of mine, I often imagine the conversations that must have taken place between the signers of the Declaration of Independence and their wives prior to that vote on July 4th, 1776. All of these men but one were married. Benjamin Franklin's wife had passed many years earlier. The family unit was very secure in those days, and the bonds of marriage were exceptionally strong. There were 55 exchanges prior to this signing that must have sounded something like this. Husband, My vote and subsequent signature will guarantee vigorous persecution. The British and their allies might well come after you and our children. We will be despised by the crown. Wife, But if we don't proclaim our independence, the children will grow up forever subservient to the king. Husband, We talk much of being ready to give all for this new land, our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. The battles ahead will not be easy. Wife, neither will be liberty. Sign it. There are three, again, that's just an imaginary conversation, but I I have to believe that was the conversation that was heard, or something like it, of course, in so many of these households. There are three signers, I write, whose lives have always been of particular interest to me. The first is a guy named Richard Stockton. Stockton's grandparents came to New York about 1660 and eventually settled near Princeton, New Jersey, where Richard would eventually be born in 1730. Stockton became a highly regarded attorney and in 1766 embarked for London, where his legal skills were honored by the king. Upon returning home in 1768, Stockton was chosen as a member of the Royal Executive Council of New Jersey and eventually placed on the bench of the New Jersey Supreme Court. While it would have been natural for Stockton to remain a loyal and wealthy subject of the king, he longed for liberty and began to espouse the cause of the colonial patriots. The Provincial Congress of New Jersey elected him a delegate— to the Continental Congress in 1776, where he became deeply involved in the debate for independence. On July 4th, he voted for the Declaration and, with others, signed the document on August 2nd. Soon after returning to his estate in Princeton, word came that the British Army was coming through the area in pursuit of General Washington and a small band of soldiers, Aware that he was on the British hit list, Stockton and his wife Annis hastily gathered their children and fled to a friend's farm some 30 miles away. However, a neighbor faithful to the crown discovered Stockton's hideaway. A group of loyalists stormed the farm and captured Stockton and presented him to the royal authorities. Stockton was jailed, treated extremely poorly nearly dying of starvation. In time, Congress took up his cause and arranged a prisoner exchange to free him from his captors. Upon release, Stockton was in terrible health. He was able to secure transportation to his estate in Princeton and was shocked to find his home destroyed, his livestock slaughtered, his horses gone, and his wife and children in tatters. Stockton never recovered. He suffered from chronic illness, depression, and eventually died in 1781 at the age of 51. Annis and the children were cared for by family and friends. I continue with another story. Francis Lewis was born in Wales in 1713. He was orphaned at the age of five and raised by relatives. After a college education in London, he became a business apprentice and earnestly saved his money. At the age of 21, he set sail for New York, where he established his importing business. In 1756, during the French and Indian War, Lewis was a special aide to the British forces, supplying them with uniforms and other critical supplies. He was on business at Fort Oswego when a bloody battle broke out against the French aggressors. Lewis was taken prisoner and sent to France aboard a ship, cruelly housed in a wooden box. Upon his release at the close of the war, Lewis was was rewarded for his service to the crown and received 5,000 acres of land in New York. Again, while one might think that such a man would be forever loyal to Great Britain, such was not the case for Lewis. He saw the edicts from England were strangling freedom in the colonies. And, according to Lossing, the historian, Lewis held dearly to his Republican views. Lewis's wife, Elizabeth, was also a devout patriot and fervently supported her husband when he was elected a delegate to the General Congress in 1775 and then signed the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia the following year. Once the Declaration was signed, the British placed a price upon the head of Francis Lewis. Before he was able to reach his home on Long Island, after signing the Declaration, ground troops and a warship were sent to seize his wife and totally destroy his property. Elizabeth, now listen, this is, this is so, so powerful. Elizabeth watched from a balcony, as a cannonball crashed into a wall immediately next to her. Immediately, a servant shouted to her, "'Run, mistress, run!' Mrs. Lewis calmly replied, "'Another shot is not likely to strike the same spot,' and she did not budge. The soldiers soon entered the home and destroyed all of the books and all of the papers and ruthlessly pillaged the entire property. Elizabeth Lewis was taken to New York and thrown into prison. She was not allowed a bed or a change of clothing and and given little to eat. A former family African servant, and I'm sure the left right off the bat would say, "Ah, She owns slaves! A former family African servant discovered her location, And was able to smuggle some small articles of clothing and some food to her. Again, this was a former servant who obviously so loved this woman that the servant risked his own life, the former servant risked his own life in order to smuggle some small articles of clothing and food to her. He also reported her whereabouts and condition to Congress. Demands were made for her better treatment, but the British were determined to make an example of Mrs. Lewis and her prominence and wealth. Finally, George Washington was able to broker a prisoner exchange, and Elizabeth was able to join her husband in Philadelphia. However, it was plain to everyone that because of her mistreatment, she was broken in health and slowly sinking into the grave. Francis Lewis soon asked for leave of absence from Congress, And devoted his whole time to his wife. She died in 1779. Grief-stricken, Lewis retired from Congress to live with his sons, and this great patriot died in 1802 at the age of 89 in New York City. He's buried in an unmarked grave in the yard of Trinity Church. Continuing in my book, Eco-Tyranny, page 238, the third patriot who selflessly endured great sacrifice for the sake of freedom was a humble man named John Hart. He was a farmer and known throughout New Jersey as Honest John Hart. Fellow signer Benjamin Rush described him as, quote, a plain, honest, well-meaning Jersey farmer with but little education, but with good sense and virtue enough to pursue the true interests of his country, end of quote. Honest John served with distinction as a justice of the peace, a freeholder, a freeholder would have been the highest position in a county's government, and in the pre-revolutionary legislatures of New Jersey. However, in 1765, he turned against the British authorities over the imposition of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act was a direct tax imposed on the colonies by the British Parliament. The act was created to pay for British troops stationed in North America and mandated that virtually every printed material imaginable be produced on stamped parchment produced in London carrying an embossed revenue stamp. Now, like previous taxes, the stamp tax had to be paid in valid British currency, not in colonial paper money. This tax enraged many colonialists like John Hart. In 1774, Hart was elected to the first Continental Congress by the people of New Jersey, and he signed the Declaration of Independence two years later. Immediately, Hart's life was noted with a series of tragic losses. Shortly after signing the Declaration, he was elected to the New Jersey State Assembly and chosen as its speaker. Knowing he was busy leading the state legislature, royal mercenaries raided his farm, destroyed his livestock, and terrorized his wife, Deborah. Upon learning of the raid, Hart immediately returned home to find his wife very ill. Hart was at his wife's side as she passed on October 8, 1776, but his grieving was interrupted by British troops searching for him on his property. He immediately fled into the forest with his two youngest children and ran to the home of a relative. Hart spent the winter on the run. He was sleeping in caves, eating very little. Once it became clear the British had vacated the area, Hart returned home. Though he was re-elected as Speaker of the Assembly, most accounts state that Honest John's heart was broken. He soon became very ill and died at his home on May 11th, 1779. Richard and Anna Stockton, Francis and Elizabeth Lewis, John and Deborah Hart, took literally the words of the Declaration of Independence, which states, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance On the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I close this episode of Hidden Headlines with the words of Patrick Henry, the rhetorical backbone of the American Revolution, who said this, if you make the citizens of this country agree to become the subjects of one great consolidated empire of America, your government will not have sufficient energy to keep them together. Such a government is incompatible with the genius of republicanism. There will be no checks, no real balances in this government. If our descendants be worthy of the name of Americans, they will preserve and hand down to their latest posterity the transactions of the present times. What's Patrick Henry, June 5th, 1788. Friends, it's incredibly dangerous to look at history through a present lens. God bless the United States of America. God bless you, fellow patriots, for hanging in there and fighting for the cause of freedom. May God bless this nation. Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. More on me at briansussman.com Thanks for listening.